Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the Parliament House Resort in Orlando was a center for LGBTQ plus culture from 1975 to 2020. Queer spaces are a refuge. Preserving this history can have higher stakes as people and places disappear. We'll explore the mid-19th century letters of Lyndon Brayton, he was both a farmer and a teacher, and his political activities provided access to the turmoil of the Reconstruction era. And we'll discuss endangered African-American cemeteries in our state. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The Parliament House Resort, located near the intersection of Colonial Drive and Orange Blossom Trail in Orlando, catered to the LGBTQ community from 1975 to 2020. The complex provided a safe space with a lakeside beach, pool, disco, several bars, the Footlights Theater, and hotel rooms. Nikki Fragala Barnes is a Ph.D. student at the University of Central Florida and serves on the board of directors for the LGBTQ History Museum of Central Florida. Parliament House opened as the first of a small chain of hotels in 1962. In 1975, it was purchased by two established entrepreneurs, Bill Miller and Michael Hodge of Orlando, and reopened in 1975 as a gay resort called Parliament House Resort Hotel. It closed in November 2020, in large part due to the lockdowns on travel and closings of many tourist attractions in an effort to respond to the public health crisis of the COVID-19 worldwide pandemic. Exhibits focusing on the Parliament House are online as part of the virtual LGBTQ Museum of Central Florida. One of the artifacts shown is a program from the Parliament House Resort Grand Opening, which took place September 29th through October 5th, 1975. The opening page contains an enthusiastic welcome from new owners, Bill Miller and Michael Hodge. It's clear from the messaging that this was circulated in advance of the event, encouraging prospective guests to book with details and rates on room reservations. $14 for a single and $16 for a double with a $3 upcharge for an additional person and a note that pageant contestants could take advantage of a special rate. Detailing the Miss and Mr. Parliament House pageant, the program also contains a lined entry form for entering the pageant. The Miss Parliament House pageant would take place on Monday, the 29th of September with sportswear, swimwear, evening wear, and talent. And the Mr. Parliament House pageant took place on Wednesday, the 1st of October, with self-expression, swimwear, and talent. It's filled with drink specials and details with an opening cocktail party ahead of the festivities. 
that begin in force on Thursday with a barbecue luau on the beach of Rock Lake and a disco party that night with a dance contest. Friday and Saturday featured a Playhouse Theater production of the Broadway musical MAME. And Sunday is, quote, to rest and give everyone a chance to unwind from a fun-filled week, end quote. There's a special boxed announcement invitation to a grand opening kickoff cruise out of Daytona on Sunday, the 28th of October for $9.95 a person with 25 cent beers. Of special interest are the included advertisements from vendors present on the property and local establishments. A haircut shop, the Gay Blade, a boutique and florist are listed as within the resort and the Palace Club on Humphreys is also listed open for dancing until 6 a.m. Alexis Rodriguez is a graduate student at the University of Central Florida and vice president of the LGBTQ Museum of Central Florida. Rodriguez's research focuses on a photography collection that features images of female impersonators at the Parliament House. Due to the lack of information, I began to use social media platforms such as Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as tools in collecting information and contacting sources. Within the collection was a series of calendars, which fortunately had a photographer's watermark. By contacting him through Instagram, I conducted an oral history related to the calendars, performers, and the photographer, who's also a female impersonator. Through developing this connection with Locke Robertson and discussing with his associates the museum's project in gathering Central Florida's LGBTQ plus history in person and through social media, others join in offering some of their stories and providing potential contacts. In addition to Instagram, I also managed to collect information through crowdsourcing on the museum's Facebook page, which then promoted a discussion among patrons at Parliament House Orlando, allowing me to examine the relation between collective and individual memory. Alexis Rodriguez found that social media contact was not sufficient to complete his historical research in 2020. While the use of social media aided in research and outreach, much of the history related to the, some of the photographs was kept alive through the preceding generation who saw the transformative years of Central Florida's LGBTQ community during the 1970s and 80s. This, of course, presented a dilemma as many from the preceding generations were not familiar with platforms such as Zoom or video teleconferencing software programs, and many were at an age which made them more susceptible to the COVID-19 virus. After much deliberation and through taking the appropriate precautions, I began to conduct oral histories in person following the CDC guidelines to gather as much history as possible, especially after the passing of Sammy Sangaus, or known on stage as Miss Sammy, who was both an Orlando icon and Broadway performer. His unfortunate passing after setting up a date for an interview further motivated me to seek out and preserve the history of Central Florida's female impersonation subculture. Through conducting and collecting oral histories which primarily focused on female impersonators, I came to realize the intricacies in attempting to preserve this history and how it plays into the issues of historical erasure of certain subgroups and cultures to the notion of collective memory. There is very little information about Florida's LGBTQ community prior to the 1960s, Rodriguez says that's because the community was largely closeted, but that changed. The arrival of several organizations and businesses such as the Kennedy Space Center in 1962, the University of Central Florida in 1968, and Disney World in 1971 increased the development of various establishments which catered to the LGBTQ population. In 1972, Bill Miller, Michael Hodge, John Corrin, Wally Wood, and Suhana who eventually became known as a gay and lesbian gang, sought to create gay and lesbian clubs and bars in Orlando, 
two of which hold significance for both gay and female impersonation history, the Diamond Head and Parliament House Orlando. The Diamond Head, considered the first gay bar of Central Florida, was purchased by Bill Miller and Michael Hodge, and was a venue that provided a show bar for female impersonators and pageants such as Miss Diamond Head. The date of its closing is unknown. Parliament House Orlando, once a part of a hotel change in the early 1960s, was purchased by Bill Miller and Michael Hodge several years later and closed in November 2020. The significance of Parliament House in particular demonstrates the necessity of investigating other historic sites of memory. While Parliament House Orlando was considered a safe haven for Orlando's LGBTQ community due to social homophobia and recognized as, quote, one of the oldest gay resorts and entertainment complexes in the United States, end quote, the significance of this site expands to other communities and subcultures. Within this gay resort was a Footlight Theater, where, after the Diamond Head, became a popular site within the national female impersonation subculture. Rodriguez says that the Footlight Theater at the Parliament House helped to develop Central Florida's LGBTQ community and link it with the national drag subculture. The popularity of pageantry, for example, placed Central Florida and South Florida in the periphery of the greater female impersonation subculture as the creation of the state pageant Miss Florida in 1972 and subsequent subcategories allowed Florida's female impersonators to travel and participate in national pageantry, as well as bring the attention of potential visitors and residents to the region. The Footlight Theater also played a role within this as Miss Central Florida and other similar pageants were held at Parliament House Orlando as a precursor towards entering the national pageants. The development of these subcultures throughout an era of social homophobia should not be discredited as mere entertainment history, but rather an important development towards the historic narrative. A 1960s-style oval sign with multicolored rectangles used to welcome visitors inside the Parliament House Resort Complex, which is now an empty lot. To see the sign, visit the Florida Historical Society on Facebook. Nikki Fergala Barnes explains why remembering the Parliament House is important. There are specific vulnerabilities present as members of the LGBTQ community who embody an identity that has been criminalized, oppressed, and persecuted. Public spaces could contain imminent danger. People who identify as queer often develop self-preservation coping behaviors to decrease the risks and punishments of visibility among the dominant heterosexual population. Presence itself becomes precarious. The emergence of queer spaces through bars, bookstores, etc., affords queer people places to belong. Because the typical landscape consists of places that are socially coded to welcome and reinforce mainstream, dominant, heteronormative culture, they have written out queer narratives and ways of being. Queer spaces are a refuge. Preserving this history can have higher stakes as people and places disappear. Nikki Fergala Barnes and Alexis Rodriguez both presented papers as part of the 2021 Florida Historical Society Virtual Annual Meeting and Symposium. More information about the conference is online at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Sessions presented as part of the 2021 Florida Historical Society Virtual Annual Meeting and Symposium include Indigenous Florida, Queer History and Precarious Memory, and Difficult History, Preserving the Past and Protecting the Future. More information is online at myfloridahistory.org. 
Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, in our conversations about Florida, we focused on the end product of scholarship, the article or book that's produced. Tell us about the research into the documents. Historians will tell you that the research is the fun part. Sitting in the archives and holding documents written decades or centuries ago is like time travel. I use an anecdote with my students to explain this. I was researching my dissertation on agrarian movements in late 19th century Tennessee and was reading a farmer's diary from the 1870s. The views he expressed were a window onto the economic and political issues of the day. He was both a farmer and a teacher and his political activities provided access to the turmoil of the Reconstruction era. As I completed his diary, I looked at the end pages and I was transported back more than a hundred years. On those end pages, he had written the alphabet and his child had copied it in his own unsure hand. Suddenly his life and his family were more real than anything he had written in the hundred plus pages I had just read. And I'm sure you can point to some similar experiences in Florida history. Yes, and one I'm going to talk about is readily accessible to our listeners. In 1992, the FHQ published a series of letters written by Caleb Lyndon Brayton from his homestead on the Indian River to his wife, Marion, who lived in Augusta, Georgia, and sometimes in Falls River, Massachusetts. The letters were edited by his great-great-grandson, Edward Caleb Coker, and history professor Daniel L. Schaefer. The letters spanned a decade from 1844 to 1854 when Brayton died from tuberculosis. Give us a little background on the Braytons. Who were they? Lyndon Brayton, he used his middle name in the correspondence, was born in Rhode Island and became a merchant in Falls River. When he developed tuberculosis, he and his wife moved to Augusta, Georgia for his health. There he engaged in wholesale and retail merchandising of boots and shoes. The information provided suggests that he also maintained some business activities in Falls River. He and his wife had one son, Thomas, during the years in Augusta. As Lyndon's health deteriorated, he decided to move further south to Florida and in 1843 obtained 160 acres on the Indian River through the Armed Occupation Act. His land was in St. Lucie County, and because of its elevation, became known as Brayton's Bluff. You mentioned his letters. Can we hear some excerpts? Of course. His letters tell us a lot about settlement on the Florida borderlands in the immediate aftermath of the Second Seminole War. He's very lonely. Marion was pregnant when he left Augusta, and the first letter dated July 11, 1844, tells us about his feelings. Dear Marion, I have this morning learned that I was again blessed with being the father of another fine son, and that you are doing well after your intense suffering. I cannot but express my desire that you should be extremely careful of your own health as well as that of your dear children. He goes on to say, I never wanted to see you as much in my life and the little one too. How does he look? 
what color his eyes, hair, etc., etc. Take good care of him and Tommy and learn them to love me. In April 1845, he provided lots of details about the construction of his cabin, the planting of crops, and the development of markets for arrowroot, pumpkins, and fish, as well as the prices for his farm and fishing production. In 1845, he writes, I have 12 hens and 55 chickens and calculate to have 200 before fall. I will send 100 to Key West in July or August, where they readily command 50 cents cash. I have 142 acres of arrowroot from which I expect to realize three to $400. I hope to raise rice sufficient for my family and pumpkins in abundance. Next year, if I live, I expect to sell $1,000 worth of produce. Now, dearest, I once more enjoin on you to, without a moment's delay, put half a barrel of some 100 grape cuttings, pomegranates, figs, raspberries, etc. Water them well and have them ready to bring with you. He's expecting her to come. He urges Marion to come to Florida, although he recognizes her reluctance to do so. In a letter, October the 16th, 1848, he writes, Dearest, cannot you manage some way to get to Smyrna from which I can get you by small boat inside as there is water communication island from St. Lucie to New Smyrna all the way except a half mile. He refers to time spent in St. Augustine and Augusta with Marion, and both of them makes trips to Falls River, something that may seem surprising to readers given the difficulty of travel in the period. Lyndon also comments on larger state and national issues. A member of the Whig party, he was elected as county court clerk in St. Lucie County. On April 19, 1845, he noted Florida's statehood. Florida is no longer a territory. Texas and herself have simultaneously doffed the garb of a child and taken to themselves that of a man. In other words, they are both recognized as states and we are enjoying like privileges with yourselves. In 1851, he chastises Marion for her views and position on the fugitive slave law. What are you making such a fuss about the fugitive slave law for? You had better take care of the poor whites and let Negroes to their masters. His hopes for prosperity in Florida are repeatedly dashed as boats sink, Indians attack, and payments for his contract to deliver mail is constantly in arrears. The most harrowing event occurs in July, 1849, when four Indians attacked John Russell's farm, wounding Russell and killing another man. He writes to Marion, Captain Gaddis took Colonel Russell in his boat and pushed off. Another gentleman and myself launched another boat which lay on shore and were just pushing off when eight Indians came up within 25 paces and took deliberate aim over a fence and fired on us. One ball passed through the sleeve of a Negro man in the boat with us. 
They reloaded and again fired at us, but none of the shots took effect. Before they could reload again, we were out of reach. This happens right before dawn. As soon as the day dawned, for you must know that all I have described was the work of a night, we commenced searching for Colonel Russell's family, who all took to the bush as soon as the firing commenced. We later learned that after reflecting a few moments, Mrs. Russell thought best for them to take the boat, which they did. Not being able to discover traces of Colonel Russell's family, we became convinced that they must have started for Smyrna as two of the boats were gone. After we had got the little schooner to sea with a cargo of some 30 souls, Mr. Thomas Morrison and myself took a boat and arms and went in pursuit of those who were missing. About 10 a.m. on the following day, having sailed all night, we discovered a boat several miles ahead of us. They took down their sail and ran ashore and hid, thinking we were Indians and would not show themselves. We finally found Mrs. Russell, Mrs. Baker, Miss Minerva Bullock, and five white children, three Negro girls, and one little Negro infant who had in the confusion got separated from its mother. Mrs. R had an infant also. Of all the heart-rending scenes, dear, that ever I witnessed, this was the most depressing. Here was a parcel of helpless women and children, barefooted and bareheaded and almost naked. The children crying and screaming for water and food, having been two days without anything to eat except oysters, which they gathered and opened with their scissors. When they arrived at Smyrna, we found the other party. Having walked on the beach for a distance of 130 miles in four days, how was it possible for those children, some of whom were only five and six years old, to walk that distance in that incredible short space of time without any provisions except what berries they could pick and turtle eggs they could find is hardly possible to conjecture. He leaves Florida after the attack and spends some four or five months in Augusta and in Falls River. Drayton's letters are a treasure. They transport us back in time and into the thoughts and hopes of those living on Florida's borderlands. They tell us about the hard life. They tell us about the beauty of the land. And they tell us about the difficulties of creating a farm and marketing the produce from that farm. Fascinating letters. Thanks for sharing them, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. I'm gonna sit right down and write myself a letter. This is Florida Frontiers. African-American cemeteries throughout Florida are some of our state's most endangered historic sites. Holly Baker has more. The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation recently announced 2021's 11 to Save list of the most threatened historic properties and resources across Florida. Abandoned African-American cemeteries statewide are included on the list. Cemeteries are important cultural and historical sites that are vulnerable to destruction from development, vandalism, and the passage of time. 
African-American cemeteries in Florida have been especially at risk of being destroyed or erased. Christine Dalton is a historic preservation and community planning specialist and a trustee for the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation. This year, we chose to list abandoned African-American cemeteries statewide. We have uh, quite an issue in the state of Florida with abandoned African-American cemeteries because oftentimes there are questions regarding ownership of the property, who actually owns the cemetery, so who's actually responsible for maintaining the cemetery. In 2019, two forgotten cemeteries in Tampa were discovered with ground-penetrating radar. And there was approximately 200 graves at the cemetery, and it was buried and forgotten under a public housing complex and warehouse. So these cemeteries were basically plowed over and developed over. Further research uncovered five additional forgotten African-American cemeteries in the Tampa Bay area. Ennis Davis is an urban planning consultant and a trustee for the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation. The ugly history regarding the fate of many segregation-era African-American cemeteries was really highlighted in, in 2019 when two forgotten cemeteries in the Tampa area were rediscovered. For those in the African-American community, uh, such as myself, this news was not really surprising or unique. As horrible as these Tampa discoveries sound, there are uh, examples of abandoned disgrace, uh, desecrated, and disturbed cemeteries all over the state of Florida. For example, in Jacksonville, Mount Hermon Cemetery was developed around 1880 to serve as the final resting place for what was then the city's rapidly growing Black community uh, during Reconstruction. In 1941, this same cemetery was deeded to the city with a requirement that it be used either as a public cemetery or a park. Well, by 1949, it's described in local papers as being an overgrown vacant lot with high weeds. Well, by 1969, this burial ground had been converted into a public park. However, it still retains visual reminders of being a cemetery, including uh, one headstone being located in the middle of a public street next to the park. Cemeteries can reveal information about a person's history, family, and religious beliefs. Headstones themselves are valuable historical records, particularly for African Americans who often don't have a lot of documentation of their ancestors' lives. The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation hopes that inclusion of African American cemeteries on the 2021 11 to Save list will help bring attention to their importance and the need for their preservation. Ennis Davis. A burial ground task force that was mobilized by the state legislator in 1998 reported that more than 40 to 50 percent of the state's cemeteries are either neglected or abandoned, and that across the state there could be more than 3,000 unpreserved African-American cemeteries. So with that in mind, in June of this year, Governor DeSantis signed into law House Bill 37, which is intended to identify lost cemeteries by establishing a task force on abandoned African-American cemeteries. And uh, this task force will create a panel of researchers to study forgotten or abandoned African-American cemeteries and burial grounds across the state. And so the inclusion of African-American cemeteries to this year's 11 to save list uh, was done with the intent to help increase public awareness of the statewide effort to bring honor and dignity to historic sites that have been long uh, forgotten and in many cases intentionally erased from public records altogether. To learn more about the Florida Trust and the 11 to Save list, go to floridatrust.org. 
For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.